Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, page 718 in our church Bibles. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and in just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 28. So just to remind us, we've been working through Mark's gospel verse by verse for quite some time. We took little breaks here and there. So the reason why we're in this text this morning is this is where we should be. Verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Interesting. Um, Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Amen. Let's pray together, please. So if you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, I just want you to listen to this hymn, part of it, please. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you wait till you are better, you'll never come at all. And this is for us that are in Christ. Let not your conscience linger of a fitness fondly dreamed. All the fitness God requires is to know your need of him. To that end, Father, please bring all the attention in this room on you. Come in power. We need it. Put your son in open view as your spirit brings your truth and your love to all of us here as he's preached. For Jesus' sake, we would ask these things. Amen. Well, I think it's helpful to understand something of what all these religious leaders who have been confronting Jesus have in common. And what it is, is how they interpreted their scriptures. You see, Jesus, as he preached and taught, called attention to the inability of people to obey the law of God perfectly. Therefore, he put before them the bad news of their condition and the good news of his salvation. And one of the ways Mark makes this clear is right in the opening chapter, verse 14 and 15, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the good news. The Greek word there is euangelion, the gospel. Verse 15, Jesus said, now is the day the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus came to earth to save sinners, unending forgiveness for the guilty. Subsequently, what was required from his listeners began with honesty. They are not what they claim to be. They are not what they ought to be, nor can they be what they need to be before a holy God. However, the religious leaders found this unacceptable because all along they had been justifying themselves before God and before the crowds with all the external self-righteous obedience, right? Honoring lips, but hearts which were so far away, traditions which they turned into essential doctrine and of a real muddle-headed understanding of the Scripture itself. 
Also, as a result of this, we learned that their obedience was like theater to them. They didn't care about the honor of God's name. They didn't care about people. They didn't care about the Gentiles, the lost, all of which the Old Testament taught they should. They simply loved money. They loved to hear the praise of people. They wanted to keep their positions of authority and the benefits which came within. And of course, Jesus, when he preached, he breaks into that fake world and exposes this. They gave impressions they were law keepers, but Jesus, through the word of God, exposed them as law breakers because everybody who's ever been born is a law breaker, and therefore everyone who's ever been born needs a savior, which is why we talked about this or last week. This is why many sinners like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the wine-bibbers look so quickly to Jesus for salvation. They knew what they were. However, Once again, the religious are too proud to acknowledge what they were, so they could not acknowledge their need of a Savior. But along with that, and this is what makes it so awful, they kept shutting the door to heaven with their do-better Bible lessons and lists, which just kept growing, if you would, Sabbath by Sabbath. Now, I want you to think with me. How good does one have to be to quiet their conscience, to quiet the voice of others, and to quiet the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And can you imagine what a just-one-more-thing religion would do to the psyche of a person? Therefore, they replace the good news of God's grace in Christ with religious news, which always focused on the self, always focused on human ability and effort to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, and to enjoy God's forgiveness. And of course, when they did that, they always came out ahead, right? Because they were wealthy and they were religious, two signs. So they thought that God was on their side, that he was approving of their ways. But Jesus opened the door to heaven by setting before them, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, or that real-time conversation with the rich young ruler, each of which asked the question either directly or indirectly, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, yes, there is life past death. Yes, there's something which needs to be done because eternal life with God is not automatic. And the point Jesus was making in the telling of the parables and in that conversation was you cannot do anything to inherit eternal life or to be right before a holy God. So, yeah, we might get it right here or there once or twice, but here or there once or twice is not God's standard, nor... Is it nothing at all, right? It's, it's, we'll just say it like this. It's either all or nothing at all. Read the opening part of Genesis, and you'll discover that's true. And you see, the conclusion which Jesus was looking for was Luke chapter 15, verse 19. In the parable of the prodigal son, this is what he said. He's coming home. He came to his senses. I am not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be part of the family. I'll just go back and ask dad for mercy. And that was it. That's the good news. That's the thing that gets it started. And it's the thing that keeps it going. So you see yourself and you weep. You see Christ and you rejoice. And you need to keep before you. You're never going to be good enough for God. And, and you need God to be merciful towards you. You do not want what you deserve. You don't even want another chance. You want mercy. However, you think about the parable. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to know it, to feel it, and to live your life towards God and towards other people like it. 
Because the big brother in the parable, a picture of the religious leaders, and sometimes a picture of you and I, was like, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute. I've been keeping the rules for a long, long time. I've been going to twice a week synagogue for a long, long time. I've given my time. I've given my energy. I've given my money and my effort. Like, you don't know what. And I've, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Wasn't the conclusion of all your good effort simply a loving response to a God who loves you and showed mercy to you? And don't you want God to be glorified? Don't you want people to be saved? Your little brother is saved. Isn't that good? Or did you do obedience because of, of um, yourself? Right? Did you do obedience because of your gratitude and love for God? Or did you do obedience because you just want to justify yourself before God? You're like the theater of obedience. And you thought less of God. Because you thought that you had to do good things to earn God's love and to earn God's favor, meaning you were doing good things for a God who doesn't exist. Because the God of the Bible finds that kind of obedience appalling. My son, that's the obedience that you need. Therefore, and I love saying this, Jesus in the good news says, I'll be what you can't be. I'll take the punishment you deserve because of your disobedience and I'll give you a new heart and you are going to have a new life and you're going to have new powers to fight indwelling sin and oh yeah, you're going to sin but forgiveness is so fast and so free and I'm going to help you live a life which brings glory to me and puts no confidence in you. Listen to Spurgeon. Do not attempt to touch yourself up and make yourself something other than what you really are but come as you are to the one who justifies the ungodly. The religious then and the religious now won't do that. Therefore, Jesus rejects the religious leader's oral interpretation of the written word of God, i.e. the Old Testament. That is fundamental to know. It's fundamental to our understanding of this text. Now, up till then, the questions that have been coming to Jesus are essentially trick questions. This question is not. Verse 28, if your Bible is open, you see it there. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Right? So that's a good start. He heard Jesus, which means he was actually listening to Jesus. That's always good. And the scribe noticed that Jesus had given a good answer, and so he was able to see that all those attempted character assassinations of Jesus, as those questions, you know, were meant to trick him, expose him in some way. They were failing. All Jesus did was open up his Bible proper and speak from it. In light of that, the scribe, who would know his Bible pretty well, asked the question. And it's the first point. It's an honest question of all the commandments, which is the most important one. And what he is asking essentially is what matters most in life. Yes, there is a God. Yes, he commands things. But what is fundamental here? What is the chief end of my existence before this God? So, so I need coherence. There's so many laws and there's so many rules. What is the principle by which I am to fashion my entire life around? Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is there is a large measure of humility in his approach to Jesus. Number one, he didn't come looking for a fight. He came looking for an answer. There's a huge difference. Second, this man, as I said, was a scribe, meaning he was an expert. He was a professional with his Old Testament. He knew God's law. He knew the word. And he knew it in detail, which was stunning. 
So he would have been able to tell you that there are many positive commands in the law as they are parts in the human body, 248. He could also say there were 365 negative commands in God's law, and we would say, like the days and the year, and he would say, yeah, but also the number, by most accounts, of the number of arteries and veins in the human body. So he was an expert. He knew the law, but he was humble enough to, to acknowledge that, and listen carefully, he didn't know how to pull all the information together. Okay, yeah, he studied it. Yeah, he taught it, but he did not know the guiding principle of it all, right? He wanted coherence, clarity, a, a rationale behind all of those words. So the data was one thing, right? To teach it, one thing. The application into his life, like his very essence, it was different, quite different. There was something missing in this scribe's life which drove him to that question. And we know this, what was missing was standing right in front of him. Right in front of him. I think I've told you this before, but way back when there was a gentleman, 20th century, there was a gentleman preacher, great preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was 27 when he first began to preach. And there was a certain Sunday in his early years where after the service, an older gentleman came up to him and said, listen, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't think you know what atonement means, right? The suffering of God's son uh, for our sins. He goes, because I never hear the cross in your sermons. I never hear the fact that you push that all forward. It's never like the apostle Paul, we preach Christ. I know nothing while I was with you but Christ and him crucified. So you're preaching the word, but you're not preaching the word. Listen to what he did. He got mad. He locked himself in his room, in his house, for four days. He brought four books. Two books were this, the Bible and John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, a book about the atonement. His wife would bring meals, knock on the door, get away from me. <laughs> He had the face only a mother could love, if you've ever seen Martin Lloyd-Jones. But anyway, at the end of the four days, he walks out of the room, and he said, I got it. I've got it. And from that moment on, his preaching was never the same. So there's a difference when a person and when a Christian comes to the Bible and has no gospel connection, no gospel foundation, no gospel filter, with, which with all of the instruction of the entire Bible is tied to, is filtered through. If that is not the case, then the Bible just becomes another do-better book. You don't measure up. You are not doing better. The Christian, listen, the Christian understands that we always need to do better. But because of Jesus, we will always measure up, right? That's our go-to place, Sunday by Sunday, Monday by Monday, and so on. I mean, would you like to be in a relationship, whether a friendship or a marriage, where it was always do better? Yeah, not me. You can have that. So if you like, the scribe was doing John chapter 5, verse 39. He was pouring over the scriptures. This is Jesus' words. Because he thought that if he was real diligent with the Bible, that he would find life, eternal life. But Jesus says, these scriptures point to me. Point to me. Consequently, in this case, if you don't understand why the law of God was given... You can kill yourself with it. You'll kill others with it. And if you're a parent, you can kill your kids with it. And one of the reasons the law, which the scribe knew so well, was given was that when an honest, 
read-through of the entire law would, would actually take ba- place, the person would have to wonder, how could I keep this in, a, in one single day without being corrupted by my failures in some way? That's the point. You can't. God's law, which is wonderful, reveals still how desperately sinful we are. That's Romans 3.20, Romans 5.20, Romans 7, 7, 8. Thus, the law of God points to the need of a Savior, and the scribe wasn't there yet. See your Bible, verse 34. He was close, but he wasn't close enough. You see, he wasn't really seeking salvation so much as meaning. And there's a subtle difference in that. All right, so just Jesus listens to Jesus. He, he, he does, excuse me, the scribe, hears his profound answer. He sees that Jesus doesn't break into a million pieces when, when his enemies throw stones at him. Out come the question. Of all the 613 laws, which one is the priority? Tell me the most important one. That's the first question. Second, the perfect answer, because it is a perfect answer to the question. The most important one answered Jesus is this. You see it there? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So the scribe had an open mind. Jesus gives him a solid answer, which you'll notice. Listen, it doesn't begin with a command, but it begins with a person. A person, because to love God calls for the question, okay, who is this God I am to love? What is he like? For that reason, God doesn't begin with a rule here. Jesus doesn't begin with a rule. He begins with a person. Therefore, before the command, Jesus gives a person and explains the reason why the Lord is to be loved, which gives indication to why then this command is so rational, right? If you don't know the greatness of God, to love him with all you have and to love your neighbor like yourself, it might not make any sense to you. And so no surprise here, this is Jesus at his best. He quotes from the Bible, Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 was a twice a day prayer. This scribe would pray and he probably would have it written in a box in his forehead. So I pictured this. I pictured Jesus tapping on the head, his little box. Okay, here it begins. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, this. There is only one reality at the heart of the universe. And that one reality is the one God. The Lord is one. Now, when that truth was given in the days of Moses, it would have been shocking to many people just as it would be shocking to many people in our day. Because in that day, like our day, they lived in a pluralistic society. Many religions, many gods, and many sincere people, they're in those ideas. But here God reveals himself as one, the one and only God, and all the other gods are no more than gods of our own imagination, right? Gods of our own desires, gods of our own fears, gods of our culture, our customs, gods of our convictions. And you know, if you think about it, one of the reasons why it's so amazingly important to come here week by week on a Sunday morning is that we rehearse truth about God, which is true. And our flesh is so fleshy that we need to rehearse these things over and over again till death do us part. And to then to dismiss or ignore this one God as he reveals himself and to ignore his commands as he gives them, in essence, is banging our heads against that reality. Right? If we ignore God, we bang our heads against that reality. And you know what? Some of us need to stop concussing ourselves, right? 
build our life on him. On the rock, not on rules, not even the law, but upon him. Therefore, Jesus begins in that way, here is God. I'm not going to give you a rule yet. Here is God. He's one. And you see, if we have a false view of God, our worship, no matter how sincere we are, no matter how great we may or may not sound, our worship is idolatry. Our life would be just muddled up. And I promise you, I promise you, you won't have a gospel feeling in your body. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say you won't have a gospel feeling in your body? Well, this is the reason why. It's very interesting that the text that Jesus quotes from, which begins with a person and not a rule, to answer the question, what's the most important command of all of them, is tied to Israel's rescue from their bondage to Egypt. Right? And that little rescue was a precursor, a, a, a very much a precursor to the gospel that Jesus would proclaim, and of course, Jesus embodied. So the Exodus was a prototype of the gospel. Listen. So the context of Deuteronomy 6 was part of that rehearsal. So when they would say that, they were rehearsing that there was a long time ago when God heard the cries of his people, they were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. And God remembered his covenant, verse 26, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God came down and he visited them and he had mercy on them and he rescued them with his strong right hand and his outstretched arm. Little King James Version there for you. So you get it? They were toast. They were slaves to Egypt and they weren't strong enough to save themselves. And the exodus was that defining moment in the history of Israel and the covenant God made with them so that they would refer to the Exodus again and again in their worship, again and again in their writings. Read your Old Testament, especially the Psalms. Always going back to that great day when God had mercy on them and God rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. It was their baseline. They weren't strong enough to free themselves and God was and he was merciful God had to do it all, and God did it all. And the consequence then of God rescuing them from this oppression was such that, and this is what the Old Testament would teach, you were never allowed to neglect people who were in a similar condition like you were. In other words, people needing God's mercy, people needing God's saving right hand, the stranger, the alien, the outcast, just to name a few, all of which would fall under the heading of what? Your neighbor. Right, so you're getting this? Strangers, slaves in a foreign land. They were under the sentence of death. They weren't strong enough to free themselves. So they believed God. They took shelter, put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. He led them out. They headed to the promised land. The law was their guide, his presence active in their midst. And their neighbor, the poor, the stranger, the alien, the orphan, and so on. They were their concern because that was God's concern. The God who rescued them had great concern, not just for them, but all the people outside the covenant promises. Now, I hope, I hope you're making your gospel connections, right? We were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to it. We weren't strong enough to rescue ourselves. We weren't strong enough to love the one God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength with his due, which is his due. So we needed someone to be what we could not be, to do what is rational, because we're talking about God here, and to do what is required, because we're talking about God here. To love God with the total, 
personhood that you have every nanosecond of every day and to love your neighbor as you love yourself every nanosecond of every day. And we have it only in who, who. And don't say yourself. We have it only in Jesus. And so what do we do when we come here week by week and hopefully in our classes and hopefully in our home groups, we rehearse the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the victory of Jesus over death, resurrection, Sunday by Sunday. Because any attempt to measure ourselves against God's standard to somehow reassure ourselves or to justify ourselves is bound for disaster unless you lie to yourself. Right? The most important law calls for a comprehensive, universal, unbending, never-ending love for God with every ounce of our being. And we are to love everything which reflects God because it would be inconsistent to love God and not love those who are made in God's image. Like our neighbor? Yeah. So like the dying world? Oh, yeah. The dying world who don't know that they were made for God's glory, who do not know that they were to reflect God's image. They do not know they have incalculable worth and they need to know there's a judgment coming. Now, are you with me? Jesus' answer to that question from the scribe calls for 100% obedience, 100% of the time, for 100% of the right reasons, 100% perfect motivation, which is the only acceptable obedience. Can you do it? No. And by the way, because God is God, it's 100% reasonable to love God this way. So we say, well, I'm an 80%er. Well, that's good. Well, I'm an 85%er. Well, that's good. Or, you know, I'm a little embarrassed. It's, I'm on the alpha level 10 team. I'm a 95%er. It's quite thrilling. It's quite thrilling. By the way, all that talk that I just said, that's what destroys gospel unity. That's for free. But again, no mistake here. The answer Jesus gives is that God is worthy and therefore he is due nothing less than the devotion of our whole life for the duration of our entire life with perfect affection Inside. Now, how does he do that? Well, you see it there, verse 29. My ambitions, my motives, my affections, and my mental capacities, my thought life, my intellect, a pure mind, all the time, discipline controlled by the scriptures that God has given, and my strength, right? The potency of my muscles, my vigor. It's his, not partially, but totally. That is God's due. Then you add to that that we are to love God not only for who he is, right? He gives us life and breath and capacities and food and injury and so on. But the highest form of love to God is we love God simply because he is God. And he is lovely. Remember Job, though he slay me, if he brings it all, bring it, he brings it all, yet will I what? I'm going to keep hoping in him. Now are you with me? So anything less than a blazing perpetual fire, a white hot heat of total personhood, no compartmentalizing, you know, like six days out of the week I'll be this, and then one day out of the week I'll be that. That's too easy. Hard in love, unconditional love, because that's the word that's used there for God. That is acceptable, that is reasonable, and anything less than that, of course, is not. 
So again, if we're going to be honest, we haven't kept that command a single day in our life. So here's the problem. If this commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, if that's the greatest commandment, then it stands to reason the greatest sin is our failure to keep it. Listen to R.C. Sproul. Died last year. He's done things that I only dream about. Listen to what he said. I haven't kept that command for five minutes of my life. I've never loved God with my whole heart. My soul has never overflowed with affection for God. My mind has been lazy to respect understanding God's word. By the way, he's written probably hundreds of books. Finally, I've used only a portion of my strength and my affection for God. Were it not for Jesus, I would, I would perish because of this sin. And rightly so. But then, listen to what he does. He turns our affection on Jesus. But consider Jesus. Was there any portion of the Lord's heart that was not completely in love with the Father? No. Did Jesus restrain his soul from any affection for his Father? No. Was there anything that the Father revealed that Jesus ignored as being unworthy of his attention? No. Was his affection for his Father a spineless, weak affection? Or did he manifest the most powerful, strong affection for the Father that has ever been seen on this planet? You know the answer to these questions. The Lord Jesus Christ kept the great commandment perfectly. Every second of his life, he loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Had he not done that, he would have not fulfilled the law of God and would not have been worthy to save himself, let alone save us. Now, that's just the love of God. Now, let's think about our neighbor, right? Remember Jesus? He said a couple of things about our neighbors. If, if you love those who love you, big deal. Sinners do that. If you lend people knowing that you're going to get back your money, big deal. Even sinners do that. But he said, I say to you, lend, this is Luke 6, lend expecting nothing in return and love your enemies. Right? That is part of what neighborly love is. And there was another occasion when Jesus said, you've heard it said, this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you've heard it said by the scribes, right? One of the guys in this little story and the Pharisees, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Well, that was a scandalous misinterpretation of the law of God. I mean, you can read through the whole Old Testament, and you'll never find, hate your enemy. No, the law said, love your neighbor, full stop. But this is what the Jewish scribes did. They got busy with this uncomfortable command to love people that were outside of their group, and they reasoned that their neighbor was just like them, their kind, their tribe. And if they only had to love their neighbor, the doors opened then to hate their enemies. You mean like the Romans? Sure. What's the equivalent of our day? I don't know. Pick. That was a perversion of God's law. Because God's law said this. We are to love the entire human race. Not just any way, but the way God describes in his word. Because in God's vocabulary, neighbor includes your enemy. Your neighbor is anyone that you know within your reach that you can love. Irrespective of their worthiness or unworthiness, whether they're your friend or your enemy, their race doesn't matter, their place doesn't matter, their face doesn't matter, certainly their political persuasions didn't matter, their sexual preferences, no, no, doesn't matter. Our enemy may be the one who hates us, who's after us with a gun or a knife, who wants to take away our life, to take away our good name, to take away our reputation. Jesus says, you love them. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, just hold that thought. Don't you think if we are a forgiving, loving, giving community of faith, loving our neighbor like we love ourselves, don't you think the world would have another look at the church? I do. 
And for the person who says, well, I've been loving my neighbor, like, okay, then you know what? You sound like the rich young ruler. Remember what Jesus had to do to him? Put the law before him to straighten him up. Now, come on, son, you haven't been loving me that way. You haven't been loving your neighbor that way. Here's just some thoughts that I put down. Do you know a single mother? And she's in a real pickle. And she's got lots of kids. And it wouldn't be cool if a bunch of people got together and said, you know what, we're going to pay for your kids' college. We want them to go to school. We're going to take some of our life. We're going to bleed a little bit for you. Can you imagine if nobody's working right now? It's like, okay, you know what, I'm going to, that's cool. I'm going to work one year for you. One year. You. Or how about this? Let's say there's a lady or a guy. Kind of grumpy. Kind of difficult to be around. You go to their place. You clean their home. You spend time with them. Wipe their face. Hold their hand. With all that complaining they're doing, you just sit there for Jesus. Don't you think God would love that kind of grace extended to them? Isn't that a picture of the gospel? And so the person goes, well, I didn't have anyone when I was that way. Well, I'm so sorry about that. And I honestly am. But I want you to know, you know that behind all your glories and all your victories is the, the grace of God. All your blessings, God. All your achievements, God. All of your victories, God. You know that. So think of the worst thing you've done. Think of the worst situation you have ever encountered. The biggest mistake you have ever made. The biggest problem you've ever had. How do you want others to treat you in that? How, I know what I want. Well, then you love them that way. Hey, in Christ we're covered. But in Christ we're still Christian. Love God. Love your neighbor like he was you. Our Lord bled for you. Spill a little blood for others. Graham King is a theologian. He taught in Kenya. He taught in Cambridge. He's a poet. Listen to this little poem. Love for those we like is ordinary. Anyone can do that. Love for those who are like us is narcissistic. (laughs) Love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. And love for those who dislike us is revolutionary. You know, let me tell you what I was feeling. This is the question. Can I ask you, has there ever been a more clear moment in your life of why you need a Savior, why I need a Savior than right now? Ever. This past week, I don't know if you know this man, Juan Romero. He was in the news. He's a busboy. And in 1968, he held Robert Kennedy's bleeding head in his hand. He was in the back alley in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, California. And Mr. Kennedy was shot. And Mr. Romero ran to Kennedy to hold his head, his bleeding head. And listen to what Mr. Romero said of Mr. Kennedy. He was so kind to me. He wanted to know all about me. And when he looked at me, you could tell he took me into account. Great. He took me into account. He didn't look through me. But he looked at you as you were. Decades later, 2010, Mr. Romero is called to honor uh, Robert Kennedy, Arlington National Cemetery. He bought his first suit that he ever bought in his life for that event. Listen to what he said. When I wore that suit, I stood in front of his grave. I felt a little bit like that first day that I met him. I felt important. I felt American. And I felt good. He took me into account. What was Kennedy doing? Loving 
his neighbor as he loved himself. What was Mr. Ramiro doing? Doing unto others as he would have them do to him. What's the most important command? Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor like, like you love you. And that means if we truly love God, then God's concerns will be our concerns. If we love our neighbor, we meet their needs just as we would meet our own need. And most of our neighbor's greatest need, at least in our context, is for someone to go to them, to rearrange their life for them, to introduce and keep reintroducing Jesus to them and give them some, just some visible picture of Christ. Set it before them in their lives. I don't know what the right time to read this quote from C.S. Lewis. I might read it twice. My prayer is that when I die, all of hell will rejoice that I'm out of the fight. Final point. You see it there, close but not close enough. So verse 34, that's Jesus' reply, isn't it? Verses 32 and 33, the man almost retells Jesus' answer, almost. But the irony there is in that final phrase, verse 33, to obey He's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why do I say irony? Because wouldn't it be nice if we all obeyed all the time, right? Then then no offering would be needed. No, No death would be needed, right? No one would have to die. So it's a good answer. Jesus affirms that, but it won't get you into the kingdom. It's close, but it's not close enough. So the ball's on the one yard line, right? Let me say it like this, since we live in Minnesota. You're going to kick a 20-yard field goal, but you miss it, right? You like her. She's your friend, but she's never going to be your wife. Close, but not close enough. That's what Jesus was saying. And it's so disappointing that the scribe and no one else, you see it at verse 34? No one has any follow-up questions. I mean, he put the law right before them. There's no way that he could rationally say, oh, I'm loving God that way, and I'm loving my neighbor that way. There's no way. So the better thing would have been, can you just please help me? Okay, I, I, I'm pretty smart, but I'm not good, and, and I hate what I'm feeling right now, and I do hate others, and I'd like to be in the kingdom. Can you help me? So Jesus' love is a bleeding love. I bleed for you can be right before God just as you are. Now, go learn to bleed for others. Spill your life for me and for them. Right? Go throw some of that love around. Find your enemy. Treat them like your friend. Treat them like they're you. It's good. It's God. It's Christian. Let me close by saying this. I started listening to some of the music from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood about two weeks ago. So I listened to the song, What Do You Do With the Mad That You Feel? Good song. <laughs> good song. And then there's another good song, It's You I Like. Right? So it's not your toys, it's you I like. And then the classic, right? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? That's a good song. 
But you know what's better than the song? The message of that table. Right? Because without that table, we're done. Let's pray. And if those will be serving communion, if you guys would come forward, please. Father, one of the great tragedies of the fall is that we get tired of familiar glories. Please never let us get tired of familiar glories like Jesus in the gospel about people and our love for them. And of course, God, your great love for us in Jesus. Amen.